Well, with your Bibles open, please be seated. If I were to ask you to characterize your work last week with a word, you'd say, it's easy. I can characterize the character of my word with this word, drudgery. Yeah, there's one of you out there that had an awesome week. That's great. Thank, thank you, Lord. But for many of us, we can characterize our experience with drudgery. Frequently, we get frustrated. There's a lack of fulfillment. There's a feeling of fruitlessness. Anybody working on a computer this week and it crashes? You ever been doing that before? Any students working on a paper? You can't find it? Oh, my. You have a demanding boss? I've been a demanding boss. You ever been on the other end of a demanding boss? I've been on the other end of a demanding boss. Or maybe the difficult customer. You're taught to smile. Even in your emails, make sure there's a smile. But you want to strangle that customer. We live in the shadowy stress of our deadlines. Even that at-home work we don't get paid for. Will the laundry never end? Or the dishes? Sometimes I'll be doing the dishes and feeling very, like I'm just the servant dad and husband. But then I know that I'm frustrated when I get done and somebody says, wait dad, before you finish up, there's a few more dishes over here. And I'm like, okay great, I'll take those two. Wait dad, i got three more over here. And then the spouse walks over with a bucket of... You ever get frustrated in your work? It seems to never Ever end. You ever wash the car and then it rains? When you feel the pain of work, it might remind you of an old movie. In the 30s, we took one of our favorite fairy tales and we brought it to life. And we had these lovely group of workers. Do you remember these guys? Remember the song? Hey-ho! Ever been in the middle of work and you don't feel like singing that song? I kind of went on YouTube and I thought, where'd this hi ho, hi ho, it's all, where'd this come from? What I found out is they first sing this song when they're done their work. They're like, we're so glad we're done the work. And they were miners. They would work, heavy work in this dark mine. They were so glad it was, it was, it was, they were leaving work with this joy is when the song came up. Even in the, in the, in this old fairy tale, Snow White, is experiencing the drudgery of a scullery maid. So she leaves and she finds the dwarf's cottage. And it's a bunch of men, so it's a mess. But she gets to work. And remember what she does when she's working to deal with the pointlessness and this mess? She sings the lovely statement, just whistle while you work. So hum a merry tune. When hearts are high, the time will fly. So just whistle while you work. Don't you have an escape strategy like that? Just whistle a little bit to deal with the pain. Escape the pain and the pointlessness. Many of you jump on the Internet and just surf endlessly. And you don't surf off into really good stuff. Or how many of us comfort eat or tragically overuse alcohol or drugs. Or some of you overuse religion. I'll just do the next religious thing and work hard at it. But it's actually a really subversive way of whistling, escaping the pain and the pointlessness. Your work's righteousness is not going to help. 
You know, the first couple of years as a nurse, I worked in an emergency room, and it were the suicides of young people that broke my heart. You read the notes, my work means nothing to me. You read the notes, I don't like feeling the pain of my life. Whistling while we work. Aren't we glad that the Word of God helps us to know that we will wince with pain, but it gives us the why. If you're a guest today, if you want to follow um, in, in, in our message notes in the bulletin, the title is Our Problems with Work, Part 1. Is that all we can do is whistle? No. Here's the first thing to know. Because of the curse, our work is going to feel painful. Christianity just puts it out there. Work can feel like a four-letter word. Two weeks ago, it was Saturday night, and I usually kind of just pray and think through my sermon, and I heard the washing machine working, turning away, but then I heard a trickle of water. I ignored it like any man would do. But the trickle got louder, and I looked over to the... We've got one of these washing machines that's upstairs. I don't know whoever engineered that idea. I look over, and there's water pouring and bubbling out of the washing machine, coming. And I was like, okay, in my head, I said a few things I shouldn't have said. The right reverend wasn't very reverent. And don't look at me like, oh, you unholy pastor. You ever smack yourself with a hammer? You're going to... The most holy person in here is going to say something because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And my goodness, I went over, I got, grabbed, my, I grabbed my boys to help me lift this thing and it was dripping through the ceiling. The work became very painful and very pointless. It can feel like that. Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we're given this great vision of a king and a queen Join together and go out there and work. Let's call that the before picture. Because it quickly changes tragically by their rebellion. I don't want to image you, God. I don't want to receive your grace. I want to grab, take, consume. I don't want to be fruitful. I don't want to work with the person that you've given me. That rebellion against our design and dignity has altered the royalty of our royal status. The reason we curse when something is not working is you are royalty. I am looking at kings and queens, princes and princesses. We don't often feel that way, but that is what you are. And of course you're going to get frustrated when the work hurts. The after picture altered because of the curse. It's like imagine a sailboat. It's meant to sail. That's the design. Take the wind. Receive But if you see a sailboat that's run aground, you would say, it ain't working. If we try to live our lives outside of our design, we will be out of relationship with the living God. Instead of mastering the world, we will feel mastered by it. Instead of governing the world that God puts us right there to do something great, we will feel enslaved to it. And that's why Miroslav Vol said this, God's curse after the fall, expresses the fact that alienation is inerrant in the human experience of work. Did you see that when we read the Scripture, the word pain was used for both the effects on the woman, 
and the effects on the man. And by the way, if you're not married, or maybe you've been married and maybe now you're a widow or widower, everything that's going to be said today about men and women can be expanded out to the human condition. So don't check out, or at least understand how these curses affect relationships. Pain is used. A rare word in Hebrew. Only three times will the word be used. What does it mean? It's not a mild irritation. It's not simply the somatic sensation of pain, a bodily ache. It's the rare combination of physical pain and mental anguish mixed together. Let me give you the word how it would sound to a Jew. It's sasaban. We just say pain. I don't think our word captures it, unless it's maybe a groan. If you were a Hebrew, you would have said, what happened in the beginning? We were supposed to work with pleasure. We got a curse, and over and over, God said the consequence of our rebellion is it's sasaban. Pain. The physical, mental combination. The curse falls on the royal domains of what a man and a woman were to do. Don't miss this. It's not like, okay, guys, you screwed up. The domains receive the curse. The callings, the unique callings, received the unique curses. And there's two. Women experience two, and men experience two. Let's listen to both. He starts with the lady. The woman, created to be fruitful, is going to have labor pain. Isn't it interesting we call it that? Labor pain. Let's read it together. Look at Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain. It's Asaban. It ain't just going to be physical though with the epidural. It's going to be mental. You're going to experience it in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He'll rule over you. What was the first categorical command that had been given to the man and the woman in Genesis? Be fruitful. Increase in number. Fill the earth. Why? Like we talked about the last two weeks, we were placed here on the planet to be a beautiful reflection of God. The reason that Adam and Eve were told to have children is so that new little reflections would populate the planet. Have another one. Put them over there. Have another one. Put them over there. You move a little forward like there's this guy named Jubal. He starts making musical instruments. Have these little statues that come to life and show God. But Adam and Eve, that first categorical command, they decide, nope, we're going to rebel against this order. For the woman, her most fundamental right and privilege to have a child. Part of her very being now becomes a pain-filled thing. And the Hebrew phrase is so unique here. It does not mean just pain when you have a baby. I know, I remember all five of our labor processes. I say our, she went through most of it, okay? Look, she got the epidural. But the pain was so significant. But the Hebrew doesn't say it's going to hurt when that baby comes out. The Hebrew is very unique. 
It says you're going to have pain when you have that baby. You're also going to have pain when you raise that baby. I don't know how many adults I talk to and say, how you doing? And they say, my 36-year-old son, who's still living with me, is making decisions that cause pain. Ladies, I wish it was simply the pain of childbearing, but the curse was never simply that experience. The curse was that every moment you raise this child, you will say to yourself, I've conceived, I've conceived, how could I ever turn from God? There's something about when we are in deep suffering that we finally say, what's going on? There's actually a kindness, ladies, in the consequence with every pain when you say, I conceived this. You need to say, I conceived sin on this planet. You turn to God for grace. Yes, it's pain. Your children create sadness, grief, trouble. Did you notice the second part of the consequence of the curse? It's not just those kids. It's that husband. Let me read the phrase. Your desire shall be for him and he shall rule over you. Oh my goodness, a man and a woman are supposed to have relational intimacy. But what happens is, is the pleasure of relationship is turned to pain. The allurement of another person is now an annoying individual. You're supposed to be interested and intimate with another, but they cause you mental anguish. This is where the broken promises, the shouting matches, the separations, the abuse, and the divorces derive. God gave us up to the power of our sinful confusion. And that power struggle is a way we try to medicate our pain. Let me read it to you again. Your desire, he said to the woman, shall be for him and he'll rule over you. What does that mean? These are two very powerful verbs. Desire, rule. Well, it's worth reflecting on the fact that the two verbs are only used one other place in Scripture and it's exactly in the next chapter. Some of you are new to Christianity. You want to know, like, how do I learn the Bible? Make sure you read the whole story because if you look at chapter 4, those of you that know the Christian story, Eve has a little baby and another little baby. Two boys, Cain and Abel. And Cain, he don't like Abel. He wants to murder his brother. And God comes and says, whoa, 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 time out. Cain. And he says the exact words to him. Sin, like an animal, is crouching like a lion. Sin wants to take you out so you'll go kill your brother. Sin desires to manipulate you. But you know what you're supposed to do? Rule it. Brutalize that sin. Push back or you're going to have a dead brother. What do these words mean to the woman? Well, we know what they mean. This is why ladies and men that are at the other end of it, your desire is to control that man, to determine his actions. Push your plan. Dictate your agenda. You were designed to help your husband. He needs it. You were designed to share your wisdom. He, can, he, won't, he won't be able to even function without it. Affirm him. Empower him. But now your desire is distorted. You're going to want to control him. 
You're going to want to determine his actions instead of helping him in his work. Manipulation. Bossing around. That's not simply in the workplace. When a man feels bossed around, ladies, this is not a good thing. The man is not going to respond well to this. And Adam's role, Adam was to cherish his wife. Never to be harsh with her. You know how men can have a loud tone? A man was never made to talk to a dear woman, a wife, who's bearing children with anything but a sweetness in every phrase. Now, he will rule. That means he will brutalize, dominate, try to overpower her with domineering, dominant force. Men, listen to me. We are not to reject and suppress the influence of our wives. They are there to give us input or we can't function. So the curse for women. We've talked about. What about men? Take a look at verse 17. There's two consequences. To Adam he said, because you listened to or obeyed the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, there's that word again, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam, you ended up deciding not to give me your undivided attention, but your wife. That's not how you're designed. Number one, here's your curse. Here's your consequence. You're going to have a lot of pain when you try to grow things from the ground up. Thorns and thistles. Interesting term. You're reaching in for a gorgeous rose. Oh, you hit the thorn. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian and you just figure like all religions are the same, they're not. The Gilgamesh epic is a Mesopotamian myth that does not see the beginning of time the same way that we do. In fact, in their story, the paradise-like place is described with plants and trees that don't have thorns and thistles, but they have gems and precious stones. I love the fact that Christianity tells us the truth about why we wince. Other stories don't paint my reality. Notice it's not just thorns and thistles. There's sweat. There's sweat. When we had the snow a little while back, I don't have a snow shovel, but my neighbor's from up north. And my kid said, Dad, neighbor's shoveling the snow. So I went over and I said, Joe, man, that was really cool of you. you know, I, I, I didn't, I, I've got like this garden shovel, but, and he looks and he goes, Howard, no sweat. You hear that term? No sweat, man. Like to be a human being living in a hard world, we've got to say to each other, no sweat. What he was really saying is, look, man, I love you. You're my neighbor. No biggie. It really wasn't that hard for me. I had the right tool for it. But I think as humans, we try to deny this reality. 1984, I'm a 14-year-old. I watched a lot of TV. I will never forget the commercial that ran between every single show. It was selling Gillette deodorant. And the tagline was, Never let him see a sweat. 
See, horses sweat, men perspire, and women glow. Why can't we just be honest about the fact that work is hard and we sweat? There's complications. There's setbacks. We want there to be food production. We want there to be productivity in what we do. But there's a sweaty struggle. There's effort to overcome those obstacles. And I, part of the good news is that we can be honest as Christians. You no longer have to try, to try real hard acting like you're not having to try real hard. Okay, why does it feel so painful? Because of the consequences of the curse. The next time you wince, and you will, you now know why. And maybe we could deal with the pain or the difficulty, but you know what's the hardest is when the difficulty feels disillusioning. The penalty for sin brings cursed pain, but why does it have to feel so pointless? Now, this is our second point. We're going, to have to go forward. We're going to have to go to the book of Ecclesiastes and read about the pointlessness of the curse. Let's read verse 18 to 20 together of Ecclesiastes 2. It's a philosopher teacher who says this, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. If you're younger, I know you look at people that are older. And you watch us in our jobs. You want to enter the real world, but you know so many of us that are trapped in our jobs. And you don't want to make the wrong turn that we did. Look again at these seven dwarves working away. They're working in a beautiful mine. There's gems all over the wall. But have you ever thought about the lyrics of their song? In the hi-ho, it's off to work we go, they sing this. And listen to how it seems so pointless. We dig, 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 You feel the work there? In our mind the whole day. We dig, 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 dig. It's what we really like to do. In fact, there's some sort of joy in getting these gems, but then it says this in the lyrics. But we don't know what we dig them for. In fact, go back and watch this again with your grandkids or with your kids. or Just go onto YouTube. After they spend all day and they get all these jewels... Dopey throws his sack of jewels into this little house, or this little shed. He locks the door and he leaves the key hanging outside the door. Valuable gems, but he doesn't know what they're there for. He doesn't know the point. He doesn't know that someone might come and take them like the Wicked Witch. How many of us feel this? We work in a windowless office. Or maybe in a cubicle, managing numbers and information on screens that are disconnected from our real lives. You do repetitious, mindless work, subdivided, simplified for the sake of your boss's efficiency and higher productivity in the bottom line, and you just go, why am I doing this? Or stay at home, moms, that endless laundry, 
Or as I mentioned earlier, the dishes, where do they come from? Have you ever felt a sense of a pointlessness, an alienating disconnect from the work that you do? Like a car that just keeps spinning the wheels. The philosopher teacher says it feels like vanity. You ever cook in your house and you kind of burn something? Ah, the work isn't going good. And you see these little swirls of smoke. Next time you do that, because you will, try to grab the smoke. You can't grab smoke. When you try to have your work feel meaningful, what we're learning from God is because of the curse, because of sin, because of the way the world is so cracked, if you really want that deep sense of meaning, it's vanity. You can make a lot of money and get really high in the world and then be betrayed like Jesus was. Or the hammer blow of death can hit you and all that you got is going to go to somebody else and they may not value what you did your whole life. All that you did can be undone. It's like filling an etch-a-sketch and having somebody else shake it and you're like, are you kidding me? My whole life made that. All this talk about the painful pointlessness of work, let's pause a minute and catch our breath. The sadness is meant to crack our hearts open so we don't remain spiritually shallow. Our hearts are now open to the deeper things of God and we have to see Christ. This is our last point. Christ arrives on our planet to reverse that curse. This is good news. I started in verse 16 on purpose. Eve... You got two things coming your way. You don't want to live by my design? I love you enough to get you into a spot where you're going to have to look to me for salvation. And Adam, oh, you got two things coming too. What I didn't do though is I skipped right over verse 15. Before God gives consequence, He gives a promise. Do you know He actually says, alright Eve, you're going to have a baby. Before He even mentions all that pain with raising the kids, He goes, if you're going to have a baby. You have totally turned on me, disconnected. You don't even want me. You're going to have a baby. And your baby is going to come and crush Satan. You're going to have life, Eve. And then he moves into the curses. So what does Adam do? Eve, it says in Genesis 3, would be promised that a child would be born to reverse the curse. God plants a promise in our pain and pointlessness. So Adam looks at his wife after the curse. Remember the man's role. He's got to look at the world, work with the wisdom and amazing strengthening of the wife. He's got to name things. He turns to this woman and he says, I now have your name. Eve. No, that is in Hebrew. Life giver. You just got a real serious consequence and so did I. And now let's reboot this thing because there's a promise you are going to have life. Some child's going to come from you that's going to reverse all this stuff. Life giver. Ladies, listen to this. You are the ones that God has created to give birth to the future of the world. Now, I want to be sensitive. Not every woman can have a child. And the church is the one place where we say the future will be different. 
Christ gets an interesting nickname in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. He's called the second Adam. Christ comes. God becomes human. And he says, all right, the curse has happened, but I'm going to enter it. First thing he enters is our pain. Do you know that your Savior knows your pain? Let me read it to you from Isaiah 53, a prophet that predicted this child that was promised. Out of the anguish of his soul, it says in verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Jesus would come. He would enter our pain. Why? Because he was going to do it right and give us his righteousness. Oh my goodness. He will bear the iniquities. And then Galatians 3 says it in an amazing way. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law. Okay, fix your curse by your work. No, for all who rely on the works of law are under curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who doesn't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But verse 13, listen. Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Oh, the shame of being stuck up on a piece of wood, not connected to the earth where you're supposed to work, not connected to heaven where God resides, dangled there in the middle with utter futility and shame for all to see, the cursed one. I remember years ago watching a movie that was really weird. It was, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And there was a song that kind of gripped me. It was called The Big Rock Candy Mountain. I don't know if you've heard of it, but when... I was going to take a church here in the south. I, was, I have always liked kind of bluegrass music, and it's kind of hillbilly music. It had this idea of a mountain, uh, of candy, like where it was really cool. Our origin story, don't forget, in Eden happened on a mountain. You can read this because it explains it in a lot of other books in the Bible. On the mountain, we are placed to be the royalty of God in the garden. This song comes out. The Big Rock Candy Mountain, and it's got really weird lyrics. Let me read to you some that maybe you've never seen. There ain't no short-handled shovels here, no axes, saws, nor picks. I'm bound to stay where you could sleep all day, where they hung the jerk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I don't know why this song was written most of the time, our songs and culture reveal what we really want. This person wants a world where there isn't work. That's not the Christian story. In fact, what they want to do, because they look around and they say, this is so screwed up. Shovels that don't have long enough handles. Axes. Let's find the inventor of this work and hang them up. Our Christian story, God looks at us and says, I know what you're feeling. Painful, pointless. I will come and you can hang the jerk that created work. I'm not a jerk, Jesus would say. You're the jerks. You're the ones that didn't want to live life receiving grace. But to get your attention, if I can dangle in the drudgery between heaven and earth and you see the jerk that created work, maybe you'll see I love you. 
Don't forget that before Jesus ever was hung on a tree, he sweat in the garden. Can I read it for you? Luke twenty-two forty-four says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Did you know in Ezekiel it tells us that the priests were not supposed to sweat? Kind of weird. Check this out. Ezekiel 44:18. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waists. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. The priests had to dress in a weird way so they would not sweat when they did the work in the temple. God decides to become man. He decides to sweat. Our priest, the one that connects heaven to earth, says, I am going to sweat. Jesus did not say, no sweat like my neighbor. He entered the struggle. And as the second Adam, he was crowned, you know it, with a crown of thorns. This was not a little incidental thing that the Roman guards did for fun. Our King, when you meet Jesus next and you look into His eyes, you will not just be able to look at His eyes. You will look at scars that He will never hide that show that He took the thorns of the curse so you will never have to experience that for eternity. Oh, He understands our pain and pointlessness. And in Hebrews 10, it's got the coolest thing. It says, priests can never sit down because they're always taking the next innocent animal, killing it, so that so there would be a penalty. And it says in Hebrews 10, all these busy priests trying not to sweat, trying to get through their work, it says, Christ arrives, He gives a final sacrifice of Himself, and He sits down. Oh, picture Jesus in your head. He's not running around working right now. He is calm. He is looking at you when you are cursing in your head about your work. And He's saying, look at me. The work is done. I ain't sweating right now. I have taken the curse. I have said on the cross when you hang the jerk, it's finished. He's sitting down. The work is done. Can I give you a few takeaways? Number one, everyone you meet is carrying around immense pain. I hope we can be a church that understands that. The women and the children and the men and all that they're trying to grow, oh my goodness. Can we be gentle with each other, listen to each other, give each other space? Do you care about the groaning load of deep pain that we carry? Secondly, it's this. Sometimes the messiest areas of your work are the areas where the most beauty will come from. Think of your desk. Think of that one room in the house. Think of your children. Think of the grandkids that come over and terrorize the house. But embrace this. You've got to tell the truth about the curse. God did not say, Eve, here's your consequences. He said, Eve, you're going to have some pain, but you're going to have children, and the Messiah will come from you. Don't miss the beauty in the mess. Adam, it's going to hurt, and you're going to sweat, but you're going to eat. Like, you're going to have food, good food. Don't miss the beauty in the mess. Thirdly, alienated relationships can be healed. Men and women, listen. And if you're not married yet or you're, you're, you're looking at other relationships, 
We can all learn something here. Husbands, love your wives. Help with the kids. Grandpas, help with the grandkids. It's hard for a woman to have to raise those kids. Do not have harsh domination with her with your tongue. Cherish her. Nourish her gifts and her calling. And wives, wives, oh, the men need you. You want to birth life in your husband's life, not just the baby on the planet? Understand the power of respect. I like what Ray Ortland says in his book, Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. Wives, remember, God made Adam first and put him in the garden with a job to do, a mission to fulfill, a mountain to climb, but the curse creeps into your husband's heart every day, creating self-doubt. He will say at his most honest moments, am I a man enough to meet the challenges God called me to? Can I fulfill my destiny? Won't I end up failing? Is there any point to even trying harder? Women, wives, a wise wife will understand this about your husband and you will spend your life speaking grace into it. Saying things like, I believe in you. I know you don't believe in yourself. I know you can follow God's call. By God's grace for God's glory. The Lord is with you Your Savior has taken the curse. He's reversing it in your life. So I'm for you. Let's go for it again. I love the Christmas song, Joy to the World. Have you ever noticed this phrase? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found, it's good news. Would you pray with me as we prepare for the table? Father, we are so thankful that you have given us your revelation. We could not make sense of the pain and the pointlessness if we didn't understand the why behind the wincing experiences we had last week and we're going to have this week. Father, you didn't just give us the story in Revelation. You revealed Jesus. And He's sitting. Father, help our hearts right now to receive this meal. Strengthen us for the work that You are going to call us into as Your workmanship this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.